This is episode 21, part one, creative problem solving. Our next guest is Leo Lutz. He's a programmer, teacher, and audio enthusiast. Steve and Leo have been friends for a really long time, and this episode is a window into some deep thoughts. You watch me falling through that trap door, then a transform life. In this episode, Steve and Leo discuss creativity and coding, personality types, mixing audio in church, and raging wildfires. This episode is broken into two parts, so make sure to subscribe to the podcast you can be updated about the release of part two. This is the Language of Creativity podcast. So welcome to the Language of Creativity. <laughs> welcome to the Language of Creativity podcast. This is Stephen Levitt, and I'm here with my good friend, Leo Lutz. Hello. So you were telling me about this project that you were working on where... You and your company that you're in now, or what was about to become your company, yes, um, were working on something for emergency responders and taking part of a protocol that existed and mashing it up into a way that they could use it for these emergency situations where things are rapidly changing and you need information at a glance. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that project. So. It basically grew out of a former business partner who is now my business partner, Den. He works with SARS, the search and rescue team in Colorado. And they had this massive wildfire that there was high winds and it was just exploded rapidly. And so all the evacuations and everything, and it would switch directions. And so they'd have to switch all the evacuations. It was a very volatile environment. And somehow their SARS team also does a lot of the manning or at least kind of related to the manning of the call center for public to call in and public find information out. information office. Stuff. Yes, basically. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you can't staff all those people all the time. So that's where it falls under more of the volunteer side. Oh, right. And some, somehow that got more meshed with uh, SARS comm team and all that type of stuff. And basically... They were realizing, you know, my friend walks in there uh, and they are literally, you know, those big 3M post-it tablet things. Right. Like a giant three foot by three foot post-it that you exactly. take to the wall. Yeah, yeah. It's like a poster board type thing and right. you just tear off. They were literally just writing everything down and a few minutes coming in there, tearing it off, copying a bunch of stuff and adding the new stuff to oh, wow. it over and over and over. Huh. And I was like... You know, with everything changing so fast, there was like, this is not workable. Not to mention you've got the knock area, you know, the control center, which is all the team leads from the sheriff's office and fire and... This is like where you see the big press conferences from. Yeah. This is a big sheriff <laughs> exactly. trailer. And, and they, they have yeah. all the screens and everything. Okay. So there's that area. And then you've got the 911 area. And then you've got this call center. And all of them need access to all this information. And one is giving out a lot of the information, but they're also, that's where they, you know, it collated. Right. And so my friend basically went and was like, okay, Google pages, let's just do something. And so he set up a bunch of pages. And so basically he just started putting together, you know, a Google site where you just add pages. And so he had weather and info stuff, just get something up and running. And 
everyone's liking it a whole lot better because at least they're getting stuff, but they're having to switch between pages and everything. And so he calls me up and is like, how do I get all this information up onto the screens? Because we've got these TVs all over the place and we've got a bunch of Chromecasts. Oh, wow. So how do we just get this information up there? So like Chromecast, like footage of various cameras that are on the fire. No, this is all the different pages. Oh, all the different so, pages of data. So the 911 dispatch can see all the data. Uh, all the call center people can see it because there's TVs all up all around the center. Right. And in these areas. And so he's like, how do I just get this information up there? Right. And so basically I started building something uh I just built a basic web page that would go and get all those pages and put it into a grid, a oh. two, by, two by three grid. And right. so that started working. And then he went home and it didn't work anymore because he could cast from Chrome up to all these different displays from his uh, Mac computer. But Windows computers couldn't handle the load of encrypting all those video streams to all those <laughs> TVs. Oh, wow. <laughs> So, like, something about the way that Windows processed that data was heavier or yes. clunkier than yeah. the way the Mac would do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, basically, that basically turned into me staying up until one the next night, uh, just trying to figure out how to actually create web pages for Chromecast. Mm -hmm. So, you can just hit the Chromecast icon and it goes and it's directly interfacing with the internet. Oh, okay. So in so other words, like don't have a local load. Bypass the step where the computer itself is doing the collating. Yeah. Got it. Then that seems to be one of the problems that you always have to surmount as a developer, right? Because there's different systems that are taking this information and based on how they use that information or use that process, you could have different kinks in the process, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, my brother would argue that a Windows computer is much more powerful and far superior and better and all this stuff. <laughs> uh, I've gone Mac and never gone back, but uh, that's because I like my computers not to break. Yes. <laughs> well, and they don't have gaming PCs in a knock or at 911 dispatch, right? They have, you know, stuff that can handle business stuff, which is, it doesn't take that much power. Right, right. And whereas, you know, the baseline for Mac computers is closer to gaming specs. Oh, in other words, like Macs by default have higher specs and most of the high-end Windows systems tend to be like the gamer systems. And most, exactly. most of the low-end systems, basically, they run... They run like, your office apps. Yeah, they run MS Word and that's it. And you're like, good. But yeah, and Solitaire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they're not, you know, they're not optimized for being able to stream video. Right. Right. Understood. So, okay. Tell me a little bit about the process of you're working with that architecture within Chrome, which is pretty, I guess, open source, is it not? Yes. So that's what well, makes it possible for you to take this third, this Chrome Google framework and these Chrome Google casts and make something. Yes. Well, the Chromecast thing, it's totally separate by itself. So, yes, it has Chrome in the Word, but it's totally separate. Okay. And so you can actually do it other ways. Uh, so, yeah, I stayed up till like 1 or 2 in the morning getting that whole thing put together. And then the next day I have church and stuff, and I go about doing that. And partway through I get this message, and it's got a picture, and it's like they're using this thing. The picture was the morning meeting. You know, oh, wow. where they updating everyone. So you stayed and until one in the morning there. <laughs> and they're actually like in a fire command, like they use it that morning. They use it the next morning. Wow. And 
they've got it, you know, on all the different TVs and everything and everyone's loving it because now they're getting all this information. How exciting. Like, when do you ever get that kind of validation as oh, a programmer? I know. <laughs> well, you know, I got to say, we just went through the tick fire here and it was really close. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine lost his house. Um, I was in the valley at a friend's house that overlooked the valley and I saw the pillar of smoke and I was like, oh no. So I tried to rush back and get my tapes and hard drives from the studio because I've been through this dance like five times already. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not grabbing all the gear. I'm just grabbing the tapes and the hard drives and that's it. Just yeah. the stuff I can't recover. And so I was trying to get in. We, we, the studio's in a rural area, and there was this little eighth of mile stretch that the last fire a week ago before that, um, it took me a half an hour to sit at the stop sign and get, oh, I don't know, 100 cars through this stop sign that's, mm -hmm. that's on this choke point that goes to where the studio is. Well, this time with the tick fire, it took me an hour to get to the stop sign. And by the time I was there, the sheriff's cars had come through. There was all this chaos because people from the valley were trying to come over this 45 minute long windy road with no cell service. And they had closed the road going out. So the people are trying to go straight. There's people trying to turn left to get to their houses, to get their stuff, their animals, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And all these people going to Palmdale who didn't know what the hell was happening. And so um, my mom... <laughs> actually went out to this the officer who was a volunteer because the resources were so spread then. Oh, okay. And she said, do you need help? And he said, yes, please. <laughs> so my mom and my sister's boyfriend just stood out on the road and went window to window and said, hi, where are you going? Uh, yeah. This road is closed. Here's how you get. Oh, you're going to Palmdale. There was nine out of 10 people were yeah. on their commute, taking this little two lane road, jamming up the traffic. Yeah. And they don't know what's going on. Many of them running out of gas and they have to go to the bathroom. And so, you know, okay. And they're well, just trying you, to follow Google Maps. Yeah, and, and so, so they say, you know, you, you need to turn left at this stop sign. You're almost here. And then the, you, the traffic will clear up and the 14 is open. You can go to Palmdale. Oh, you need to go to your house. Okay. You're going to go straight, but just know that the road is closed at the end of the road. You know, and so once that happened, within about 45 minutes to an hour, that road had cleared up. Yeah. But nobody knew if the fire was coming down that road. Nobody oh, yeah. knew where to turn, what roads were open, what roads were closed. Um, they couldn't get cell phone information. So most people didn't even know where they are because ways just threw them down this road. Oh, and yeah. They're like, oh, yeah. So information in a situation like that is critical. It is. And it's really hard to manage. I went back and visited the team that was actually using my stuff later, probably about a year and a half after the initial event. And so talking to them and saying like, how do we get better information into the system? Is there an easier way to integrate maps and whatnot? And it was like, literally they have all these people standing around discussing maps the whole time and stuff is constantly changing. And so there is no one official source. Correct. Fires got their own stuff going on, the sheriff's office with all the police and whatever, and they're all looking at different concerns. Right. And so one knows that, okay, there are houses out here and they're going to get cut off yeah. eventually. And fire's not seeing that because it looks like it gets out, but no, that doesn't. You know, there's all this stuff that people that are local understand from their different perspectives. Right. And that's the thing is like the officers who came in, some of them were actually volunteers from like Ventura 
and things like that, because that's how bad the wildfires yeah. had been in California. And they don't know the area. So people are saying, no. I'm just on this canyon road right here. It's like literally like an eighth of a mile. And the officer's like, I'm sorry that I had my orders. I, I can't let you in. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And versus, exactly. yeah. And then that versus somebody who could just take the 14 cut off and get to Palmdale. It's like, you just don't know. And that person who's volunteer, they're as low on the priority of the people who are making the decisions as possible. Like, oh, yeah. That's, it's <laughs> like that intersection right now might as well be in another universe, right? Yeah. 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 But it is. It, it has a potential to create this huge traffic jam. Like, I could not get through. I was trying to, nobody was turning right. I couldn't, mm-hmm. it took me an hour to turn right on a stop sign, you know? And if a fire had rolled through there, I'd have been fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, and just about everybody else, right? Yeah. Yeah. So basically this thing, Matrix Seed, came out of that need. And so I eventually started just building an app around this idea so that they could actually just put the information into those boxes rather than trying to pull it from all these different pages or whatever and make it replicatable. And so they've actually used it for some flood stuff and whatnot since then. Wow. Um, and they've used it at times that I didn't even hear about. <laughs> what a cool solution. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I really wanted to do with this show was highlight creativity and creatives. One of the things that I've noticed is that creativity is often taking things that already exist and putting them together in new ways. Yeah. Well, at least from my side of things, creativity is the driving force to my problem solving. Like, that's what I love doing is solving problems. And it's my creative side that drives being able to pull different things from all these different areas together. Well, because people think of coding as like this really linear or not linear, but like really tedious form. Which it can be. (laughs) Yeah. And like very technical and very. um, Yeah. Creativity is not a word I don't think most people would associate with a programmer. No. And I, I wouldn't associate it with probably the majority of programmers. Why? Uh, At least the ones that I've worked with, they approach programming very differently. It's more, they keep trying things until it works. Oh, okay. And of course, you know, they know what works more as they get more experience. Right. But for me, it's very much more an abstraction. And so I really understand and I've got all these different pieces of how the language fits together floating around my head. And when I go to do something, then it just kind of falls into place. Right. And it was very much, I think the first time I really noticed it was geometry class. Huh. Proofs. I loved them. Really? Because once I learned the theorems and whatever, then I could just pull them together and stuff that you know, a lot of the other students, they would agonize over and you'd get like 13 steps to make it work, right? Because that's right. how they figured out how to make it work. Sure. For me, that's, a you know, three or four theorems done. Wow. Because, so you were using these theorems as building blocks. Yeah. And trying to find the shortest path. To and your... it, yeah. And I think it's the creative idea person side of me that is able to juggle all those things subconsciously 
so that I can pull them together really easily. Right. Like it just makes sense to me. And so I think that's where when I watch other programmers doing their stuff, I don't see that level or that approach to it um, where it's, they are very much, you know, thinking linearly and this will lead me to this, to this. And that's a lot of stuff that happens subconsciously for me. So it's kind of like you have all these things in your head floating around, you know, all these PHP functions and like, you know, how Ruby on Rails builds on top of PHP and you know, kind of what, what's possible. And you think, well, if this is possible, then why isn't this possible? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And then a lot of ways, a lot of times it looks like I'm doing shortcuts. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Because so much of that organization is happening subconsciously for me. Like, I don't have to think about how to get from here to here all the time, you know, or like all the little steps. Mm-hmm. I I can intuit that once I have this, I can get to here. You know, it may take some work to do it, and that's where... Right, so you have this feeling that yeah. it's going to work out, and you do, you're not afraid to try. Because yeah. you can kind of see that there's a path. You just, just like in the movie, uh, what was it, Indiana Jones where he's got to cross this chasm, but they can't see that there's a bridge because it's an invisible bridge. So he throws a little sand on it and then he could walk across because he knows there's a... Yeah. Yeah. Hey guys, it's Steve. I just wanted to interrupt your listening experience to ask you to follow our Instagram page, at Language of Creativity. The team, the guests, and myself all work very hard to put the language of creativity in your eardrums. Now we're asking you to put your thumbs where your ears are and follow at Language of Creativity on Instagram. Better yet, we want you to put the language of creativity in other people's eardrums too. We know exactly what you're thinking. Whose eardrums? Fortunately, one of my interns came up with a list. Number one, your cat. Number two, your best friend. Number three, the ghost that watches you while you sleep. Number four, your fifth grade teacher. Uh, Fifth grade teacher was all right. Uh, four, your boss. Uh, six, your dealer. I, I guess he means car dealer. Um, number seven, your ex. Number eight, your best friend's ex. And number nine, thanks for listening to this not-so-brief intermission. We appreciate your eardrums. Now back to the show. Who wrote that? So you're an INTP. Yes. On the Myers-Briggs MBTI. Yes. And what does that mean to you? Explain INTP a little bit. For me, it means uh, introvert, intuiting, thinking, and perceiving. So intuiting was kind of that process you were talking about of like you kind of sense this connection between things that are maybe unrelated to somebody else, but you know that they're probably somehow connected. Yeah. Yeah. Did I get the N right? Yeah. Intuiting? Yeah. Some people say that intuiting means abstract. Yeah. Like versus sensing, which is the opposite. And sensing is more like concrete thinker. So the intuitive in Myers-Briggs language is like actually like more associative. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then what does the perceiver mean? What is that? So that I, that's where I was getting confused because it's like those kind of things just work together. Right. You know, intuiting and perceiving. So I'm perceiving all these pieces that is just like, you know, it's coming in and. And that one's the opposite of judging, right? Right. And judging would be, I would guess, more of a reductive style of reasoning. Yeah. Uh, one very common thing is your list makers. Okay. Explain. <laughs> Are almost Explain. always J's. Explain. <laughs> judging. Because they're very much, you know, like, 
Let's get this list out there and do it. <laughs> right. So a little bit more action oriented, narrow mm -hmm. it down. Let's cut to the brass tacks kind of. Yeah. And typically what you would say, like a censor judger would make a great accountant or a great office manager or someone oh, yeah. who's really in a practical field where you get stuff done and your intuitive perceivers are your dreamers, right? I would say so. Um, kind of like sometimes a little ungrounded, sometimes like, oh yeah, let's, yeah, sure. Like leave it open. It, it can be a little bit, I think, uh, difficult. I'm an ENFP, so I also have that NP pairing and mm -hmm. I find that it's sometimes, you know, even though I enjoy doing stuff, it sometimes can get a little bit difficult to narrow it down. Right. Well, it makes it really tough to do the last mile. Yeah. Because <laughs> once you get past the part where you're doing the intuiting, where you're doing the perceiving, now you're down into that J stuff, you know, you're trying to get it done. And it's just like, oh, it's drudgery. <laughs> <laughs> it's really tough to get that last mile of getting a project done because it's it's down to just the brass tacks and you're not doing the parts that speak to you. Yeah, I, I have the same experience. And I've been trying to crack that nut for a while. So you you just recently formulated this new company. So how has yeah. having a team sort of affected that for you? Has that enhanced your process at all? I think mostly it's only affected the social side okay. uh, for me because we are kind of, we do still kind of do our own projects and then mm -hmm. just help each other when we get into our niches. Sure. You're in a three-person team, and yeah. it's complimentary. So you're not. You don't. It's like you have other coders underneath you right now. No, it's, it's more like no. you have your, it's, your it's sales guy, <laughs> and you have your project manager, right? So we got Melanie, who's basically UX, UI design. She's Important. excelled in accessibility, user experience. The my hero. <laughs> um, but she's also driven enough that she, and understands enough that she's gotten into coding. So she can do a bunch of that front end coding stuff. Oh, cool. For, you know, in the browser side. And so she's, yeah, <laughs> she's phenomenal there. And then the other side is business expertise. And that's Grant. Somewhat project management, but also just consultant in a lot of ways. And does handle more of the sales side of things. So, okay. And then I have that NP pairing as well. Mm -hmm. And there was a project you were involved in a few years ago that I was super duper fascinated <laughs> by. And I want to talk about that for a little bit. Most people, when they look at Myers-Briggs and career fields, they're looking for your typical thinker feeler or, you know, are they an introvert or an extrovert? How well do they work with the team? Do they need to work alone? Blah, blah, blah. You worked with Cameron. Was it Cameron? Yeah. Cameron and Johnson. Yeah. And, and so he was a psychologist. Yes. And he identified this unique pairing that nobody was paying any attention to. Certain traits that evolved out of this odd pairing. It didn't matter. Think or feel or whatever. Intuit, uh, introvert, extrovert. It didn't matter. Yeah. It was the pairing of the intuitive and the perceiver. Yeah. Not intuitive judger. <laughs> not sensor perceiver. But yeah. intuitive perceiver. Tell me what was unique about that. What did he... What, what he I'm, observed was this was these were the people that were idea people. They were the ones that came up with ideas that changed culture. And so whenever you see massive shifts in culture, a lot of times it's driven by something coming out of an NP. And so what that startup was trying to do was figure out a system where we could find NPs 
and help them grow because you do have that tougher to execute type of thing going on to some degree. Right. So it's like a lot of us in peace feel like failures at life because we do all these great things we're really excited about. We run out of steam and we never finish them. Yes, exactly. And then I'm a failure. I have had that. Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And so our goal was trying to figure out a system where we could attract NPs and get them into a mentorship program. We call that like a honeypot. Yeah. So like in Malcolm Gladwell speak, okay. you have this honeypot, which is like you, you, you put out something that attracts the certain type of personality you're trying to yes. find. Yes. So something that they would like. So if you're trying to attract geeks, it would be Star Trek or Star Wars, right? Yeah. Or Firefly. Um, that's a honeypot. You just yes. need to have a convention to get all those people <laughs> and then you have a table there and be like, hey, we're looking for you. You know, yes. we want you. So with, with the army, it's guns and explosions, but <laughs> you get a lot of, you get yes. a lot of uh, SPs that way. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, it didn't really take off. The hardest part, we were trying to figure out ideas and the hardest part is really because NPs, there is a broad range because you have I's and E's and you do have the T and F. T and F. And those are very different people. And so, like me, the thinking, which not necessarily, but often tends to pair up with technology. Right. You could get kind of that group together, but how do you make something that's broad enough? And I think that was that was something, that was our struggle. And unfortunately, it just didn't really go anywhere with it. So you guys were building a website that was supposed to be a magnet for this type of personality. And then the other side was that you needed to attract the very businessy people, recruiters and HR people to be able to want to pull these people into projects. So it was like there was two sides. Yeah, although we hadn't even gotten that far. Uh It was more just that original honeypot idea. Like, how do you? And how, how do you, you create an something? online community and how do you engage, how do you create something exactly. engaging? So the idea is maybe to have some tests or things that, yeah. you know, really, but again, and like. That, and that was 2011. Uh-huh. So that was, you know, the height of the gamification phase. Sure. And so that's really where we were driving. And that probably wasn't the most ideal way to do it. I think we got caught up a little bit too much into that fad. I think if, you know, if it were approached now, there would be a lot of Facebook yes. component and all these little micro modules that attract people into something, you know, maybe a podcast or other things like that. But yeah, I thought it was a fascinating yeah. idea. Um, you learned a lot about MBTI at that time. And there at was the some, time, com- yeah. there was some conversations <laughs> that we had. And so oh, I yeah. dived into it and, I found out that I'm an ENFP, not an INFJ. And that was crucial because INFJ was depressed me. (laughs) And I found out why. And the reason is that, so the Myers-Briggs, which was developed to make it easier to type people, is this 200-question test you could do to find out what your pairings were, was not the original system. The original system was based on Jung and the cognitive functions, if I'm correct. So when I deep dived into MBTI, then there's sort of this level two MBTI, which is the cognitive functions and this idea that 
a brain based on your personality has a standard order of operations that it goes through. Yes. And based on the intuitive or perceiving or, you know, the or sorry, intuitive or sensing, actually judging perceiving is not in that cognitive functions. Well, okay. So basically, yeah, you're talking about that second, like what is MBTI? Like, yes, it's a system, but what are they really trying to collate or how are they trying to bring that information down? And so really the way Cameron explained it to me was it's a system trying to figure out how your brain functions. And so which things are giving you dopamine? Hmm. If you're an introvert, you're typically not going to be getting a lot of dopamine when you're in a crowd. Oh, that's stressing you out or neutral. You know, if you're an extrovert, that's where you're gathering energy. Mm-hmm. It's it's driving you up. You got all that dopamine. Now, that's not to say that an introvert hates crowds all the time. Right. Because just because you're not getting all this dopamine doesn't mean that you hate it. Right. It's just the natural way your brain processes information coming in. Mm. And so that's really what all these systems whether it's Maya Briggs or, you know, the basic sanguine, melancholy, choleric, uh, what was the phlegmatic? Yes. You know, all those things are really just trying to figure out how does your brain process information? What brings you the most joy? Like when you're doing that test, unfortunately, it is subjective because it's, you know, how do you feel when you're going through all these questions? And that's why some people think, oh, it's fluid. Ah. No, it's not. But you may be perceiving yourself the wrong way at times because of the situations you're going through, all these different things. And so you may think because you're a J because you're Because of conditioning having... of your family, they value certain kinds of behaviors over oh, others. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you may not be acting in a way that's actually natural for you. And that's why you're stressed out and why you probably even got into checking out MBTI or something in the first am place. I, <laughs> what am I supposed to be doing with my life? Yes. Exactly. Yes, indeed. Well, um, the short version of what I understood about cognitive functions was that um, there's a function stack. And so it goes from strongest to weakest. And so for me as an ENFP, my strongest would be extroverted intuiting, which means collecting all kinds of information from the outside world in a very like, let me learn everything there is to learn kind of way. Yes. And then the second function is your memory function. So like for me, because I'm an ENFP feeler, I'm a feeler. So my second stack is introverted feeling. And this was the part that gave me a lot of self-knowledge, which was understanding that for me, I make decisions on experiences based on what my values are and how I feel about them. That really shone a light on my whole life because understanding that I'm really excited about all this information, you know, I take in all this stuff, but the way I pare it down is based on my own personal, what's important to me, what matters to me, my values, where let's say an Mm -hmm. extroverted feeler would be more like what's important for the group. What's important for, you know, it's it's more of like a, a social a social feeler. I'm yeah. more of like an individual feeler. And that's the uh-huh. second stack. And then the third stack is called the auxiliary. And it's something you use or don't use. And, you know, you can kind of pull out at parties. And that for me is the the thinking. So I actually have extroverted thinking. So like you and I get along really well because you're, you're a dominant 
thinker. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm a auxiliary thinker. So you and I can have really like intellectual conversations and get super into it. But for me, yeah. it's just like, it's not a big deal. Like, honestly, <laughs> you know, that's the fun part. But, it, you know, like my values are a little closer to my chest. Like I, but they, they're very important to me. And so like knowing that about myself has really helped me. And then the, there's your fourth function, which is like your, your one that you really have to work hard to develop. Like that's the one that's like your inferior function. And for me, that's the, the sensory. Okay. Um, so for me, the inter introverted sensing is like my, you know, I struggle with that. And uh -huh. so that I think maybe is part of why the practical stuff for me is not as easy. Because I'm so I'm so jazzed by the, the excitement of new projects and brainstorming yes. and all that kind of stuff. So um, I don't know if anybody's interested in that part of the conversation, but <laughs> I'm really interested in it, darn it. So I yes. was. <laughs> yeah. What the oh shiny syndrome? What, <laughs> give, you, give you a little firefly reference. Oh, you're oh shiny. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just like just jumping from the new to new to new because oh it's shiny. Right. No. Right. But there's something about collecting all that information that lets you know it exists. Oh, yeah. So that when you're in a group and they're like, oh, we have this problem. And then you're like, but, you know, like there's this obscure thing over here that may just solve our problem. And they're like, where does that come from? Yes. How did you know that? Yes, exactly. Somewhere <laughs> it's rattling around back there in the unconscious because we're always collecting that stuff. You oh, know? yeah. Always, where maybe a sensor is maybe more experiential in that it's the things that they've done and they remember and they've, you know, I remember that when I did this, then it was like more hands-on kind of person. Mm -hmm. And so the intuitor is just like, you know, more in theoretical, like, I wonder how the universe started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And to, to me, it's not a waste of time to think like that to a strong S it may just be like, well, what's the point in thinking of that? That doesn't get me, that doesn't help me pay my bills. No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it doesn't help anyone pay their bills, but well, except for, you know, maybe for astrophysicists. Exactly. Well, that's the career for you then. Authors. Authors. That's, there you go. Let's name a few others so we can validate our, our audience who has aspiring dreams of doing something that's, yeah. Yeah. Hi, everyone. This is Justin of the Oceanographers, and I just want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Language of Creativity. I also wanted to let you know that Stephen Lovett, the host of Language of Creativity, also does amazing work as an advisor or coach. If you're looking for advice in the music industry, starting a podcast, anything related to sound, he does this through his other company, I Create Sound. For me personally, I couldn't have gotten my first album done at all without his help. Like, seriously, I don't think the Oceanographer's album would have been completed. I was knee deep in mix reviews and going back and forth with my mixer and I really didn't know where I was headed but Steven really helped me keep on track and helped me get the quality that I really wanted out of my music. If you're looking for someone that has a really great ear and will put you in the right direction, please check him out at iCreateSound.com and fill out a contact form so that he can get in contact with you and you guys can be on your way to musical bliss. Alright, thanks. So you're also an audio engineer. Yes. For fun. For fun. Yeah, but you well, do some pretty professional I it, stuff. I do it for working as well. Uh-huh. But I've never actually done any like classes or anything. So a lot of it's just driven on picking things up from all my audio engineering friends. <laughs> and your dad too was also Yeah. He is heavy also, in music. <laughs> yeah, your dad so your dad is a he plays in a local orchestra. 
plays in an orchestra. He has a bell choir that he directs. He's taught elementary, elementary, middle school, some high school level bands for a number of years since I was a kid. He also has the county band that he conducts, and he's been doing that. Oh, goodness. So you would say that was definitely an influence on you picking up live sound recording. Oh, definitely. Well, and part of it was when uh, me and my sister were really little, you know, he had the full-on receiver with the records and, you know, the whole stack and the big speakers. And when me and my sister were, you know, three or four, and typically that's when it's like, you know, don't touch the hi-fi equipment. (laughs) (laughs) He taught us how to use it. Yeah. And so we would be playing the tapes and records and CDs when that came along, because this this was all (laughs) pre-CDs. Yeah. And so that probably started me on that route was, you know, instead of trying to do the hands-off approach, no, here's how you do it right. Cool. I used to play with tape recorders and microphones and, you know, I'd be hooking up the RCA cables in the back and moving them to my mixer. Mm -hmm. I think that was really the genesis of me being interested in voice recording when recording in general like uh-huh. I used to take I used to take the tape machine and my parents would go to these lectures they were probably church things I don't even remember what it was but I remember my dad let me like plug the tape machine into the wall in the back of the church and uh, I had my microphone and I put it out in the middle of the aisle Oh yes. I would never let my kid do that. Like <laughs> like how to give him the uh, but you know I was I was doing this hands-on stuff too and yeah. I think that's really important for kids to be able to you know interact with. So I've never, ever had a problem with anything technological. I'm the guy, people find me, people have walked into the coffee shop, said, I don't know why I know this, but you can help me with my phone. I can't get it to work. <laughs> and I'll say, I've never seen this phone before. And I'm like, click, 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 click. Okay, here you go. And oh, yes. Like, How did you do that? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'll definitely, you know, walk into a room and someone's like, so how do I do this? And <laughs> I'll show them how they do it. And like, so how long have you been using this program? It's like, I've never seen this before. Exactly. <laughs> it's, I think it's a, I think it's just a gift or it's, uh, I don't know. But then, I mean, it, it could be even weirder than that because, you know, I was, uh, I was doing some tech stuff for my mom's school and I ran an errand and I come back and I come into the room and they're like, oh, Mr. Leo is back. And it's like, I know. And the guy's like facing the other direction. It's like, what do you mean? It's like, it started working. <laughs> My mom says that. She's like, see, it wasn't working before you came here. It just hates me. Exactly. Yeah. I'm like, well, it just knows you're scared. It's like an animal. If you're not afraid, then they're calm. It's <laughs> <laughs> So your mom is a school teacher. Yes. And so you've you've kind of dabbled in helping with some educational software as well. And I was actually up late this last week doing that, uh, working on stuff remotely. <laughs> With someone. There's some real potential with education and software. My son in his school has this program called iReady. And in public school, they have a wide range of needs. It helps the teacher differentiate in the classroom. So oh, you know, yeah. they'll go on the iReady, put on the headphones. And he was working like a grade level head on certain subjects because that's what he needed. And it was a really helpful thing. He really liked it. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, educational games were like Reader Rabbit and Math stuff and it was yes. so rocket math or something it <laughs> yeah. was so boring i hated it but <laughs> probably it wasn't aimed at a np it was probably aimed at, you know an s an s of some kind someone right? that's driven to get all that all those tasks checked off <laughs> that's right sj um or just a j i don't know but yeah. um now your dad 
I have been to the Magic Castle. Yes. Because of your dad. Yes. <laughs> and he is a member at the Magic Castle. Yeah, performing member. What we, I want to talk about that. And what is what is your dad's MBTI? Like he sounds like an interesting dude. I mean, we've met once or twice. I think he's a ENTJ. Oh, okay. Cool. Or uh, ENTP, sorry. ENTP, that makes sense. Yeah, he definitely seems like a P. You took us to the Magic Castle, my wife and I, and you and your dad, and I think your mom. And so your dad really said, you know, you got to check out the close-up magic room. Uh-huh. That was cool. <laughs> that was really cool. Well, that's all the stuff that he's really, you know, done. He's he'd never really gotten into doing the stage stuff. Uh-huh. And it's the close-up, because that's when you're right there. It's happening right in front of you, you know. And in that room, it's so small and tiny. You know, if you're in that front row, you're at the table. Right. And right. so it is literally happening two feet in front of your face. Yeah. It's such a skill that I'm guessing takes hundreds of hours to get thousands, good, thousands of hours <laughs> thousands. to master. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. You see like even on a, what America's Got Talent, you know, those class up magicians uh, who actually won recently and whatnot. Yeah, no, I mean one of the one of the one of the podcasts I love to listen to work. with Science Mike. He's doing this, you know, podcast, and he says the whole time he's sitting there moving coins between his fingers, yeah. practicing during the podcast and yes. getting good at precedentation, right? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, and, and <laughs> it's just like I don't know if I have that kind of obsession, like with you know tactile things. Yes, for me, building a studio was like my first development into working with my hands and doing more like hands-on kind of thing. I think mm -hmm. I'm a very head person. Yes. Um, but that was a cool experience. Yeah. Although getting uh, back to the like the music is just, you know, I grew up around music. Yeah. And audio stuff. And so then I got pulled in and was able to learn how to do, you know, some live mixing for like children's groups at a conference type of thing. And so, you know, not a high stress environment. So it wasn't critical that it's perfect sound. And so they literally taught this little, what, probably 11 or 10 year old. 11 or 12 year old, how to run the sound system. Wow. You know, you and I have that in common. I was running sound at church at like 12 years old as well. Yeah. And I loved it. Like I gravitated toward it. Anytime I saw a soundboard or a microphone, for me, that was in also music instruments that yeah. was in church as well. Yeah. Um, spent a lot of time in church when I was young. I had totally forgotten. I actually did run sound for church quite a bit. And it was one of those horrible things where, you know, they have the sound room up in a little, behind a little window up at the top of the roof. So you can't actually hear what's happening <laughs> not, in the auditorium. Not really well. <laughs> Ours was a little better than that. I always used to walk out like into the like middle, like back of the aisles so I could really hear yeah. what was going on. Because one of the churches I went to, like the sound console was off to the right pretty far. So, and also kind of closer to the drums. So sometimes you'd have to walk out to really see. Well, that, what it that was like. where it's like, you know, for special music, sometimes if I had someone up there running it with me, I would literally be running up and down the stairs so that I could actually, you know, put my head in the back and actually hear what's going on mm -hmm. and then have to go back and change it. <laughs> <laughs> and then the guitar solo happens and you totally miss it because you're up, you're down there instead of up. Yeah. We weren't that advanced. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> But, you know, it's funny because you and I know each other um, through a mutual friend who's been on the podcast. Yeah. And I, Nat Magnuson, episodes four and five, I 
got originally got in touch with you because I needed a programmer, but then found out you did sound and you started helping me do live sound at my Don't Call Us Tory showcase. This was like 2005, right? 2006, maybe? That was 2006. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, you used to come down from Central Cal. Yeah. You'd come here and we'd load up all the stuff. Man, that was a lot of work. It was. Well, you know, especially then, because, you know, with digital, you have so much of the stuff that you can fit into a little tiny box. And back then, you know, it was all outboard gear. And so, right. And all your stuff is a I had a 31 band EQ. I would tune the room and I had had a compressor for the the main channel and a reverb box. And some people did have the board with the built in reverb box, but I thought that was inferior. So, oh, definitely. Yeah. (laughs) Um, At the time, it probably was, but nobody cared. And I cared. And people liked liked the sound of the show. I mean, we did a little coffee house, but it sounded great. Yeah. But, you know, obsessing about some of that stuff. Yeah. It's a lot of setup. But it shows because we never had to worry about feedback. That's right. In this little tiny cafe room that's super live because it's a cafe and we never had to worry about feedback. I mean, just it when you put in that extra effort, you know, it makes a difference. Yeah. But yeah, it made doing that a whole lot more work. And so, yeah, for a full year, I think every month I would come down here, we'd meet up, load up all your stuff in your little car. Drive down to uh, drive down to the middle of Hollywood, try yeah. and get a parking space in a tiny lot. Basically, the worst it got with the parking guys, like, you know, hey, we're here, we're unloading sound. All right, cool. And then by the end, it was like, no, you got to park somewhere else. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, load in, do sound check, like do a whole night's worth of music, unload, yep. load in, come back, unload. And it was, so we would go to Cantor's. Well, we'd go to Cantor's. <laughs> yeah, we'd go to Cantor's and have uh, potato pancakes at exactly. two in the morning. That was always fun, man. I I miss those days. Yeah, no, yeah. that was that was fun times. Yeah, it was a good time in life. <laughs> it was, and um, that's also you know you got to know my my wife helped out with the, the merchandise and stuff like that. Yeah, too. right so, at the tail end. So yeah, of that. I mean yeah. we all have that in common. It was, it was such a good camaraderie. Yeah. Um, well, I actually ran it for a couple. I ran it two times when you were out of town, so I'd have to drive down here. Load up all the stuff myself and go run it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I forgot about that. But, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Ten years fast forward. Thank you, Leo. <laughs> but that but, was a lot of fun. But you also do, like, sound for camp meeting uh, for your family's church's conference that they do. Yes. Um, this big, huge, like, gathering it's, of all these people. And you're working on this. long 10-day conference. And they have their own campground. So tons of trailers and tents and everything are there. And you're working with this huge console yeah. with line arrays and, uh, you know, all this different. Oh, yeah. 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 It's a long, narrow building. It was an old World War II aircraft hangar. Oh, wow. Yeah. Basically, yeah. You have multiple line arrays and it's a lot of work to set up everything. And then the reason I really got involved with it well, I was helping out. And then I was actually introduced the A2 position there. And I didn't know what that was at the time. What is A2? It's basically the uh, person that's controlling the mics and everything backstage. Oh, so, so they're the, the ones who's muting stuff. No, they're the ones that are handing out the mics to the different people to make sure that the right mics go on stage at the right time. Ooh. They're running on stage to set up and take down the mic stands for mm-hmm. the music groups, all that type of stuff. Oh, okay, cool. And so I created the position because, you know, it wasn't my world. And so I'd never seen it, but I knew there was a need. So I kind of just started doing it (laughs) and I had a lot of fun with it because it got me involved with the whole video production side. Cause it's like, you know, we got to set this up and let's get, 
you know, this next little announcement section over on the stage right so that we can set up these people on stage left and make sure that I don't go on stage until they got the tight shot, <laughs> you know, and so it's all that communication, you know, is a lot of fun. That's kind of cool. There's, there's some overlap with the video and the audio. And that's one of the cool things about doing yeah. church media is that they're closer together. So you can kind of dabble in both worlds pretty easily. Well, that and I think just because it was a 10-day event, you're definitely working together yeah. for quite a while. And then I took a break because I was, I lived out of state for a few years and everything. And so then when I came back, they needed someone on the broadcast side to run audio because- It's a separate it, it mix. Was, it's a separate mix and it's going to satellite. And so they needed something, you know, because it would stream to all the other churches in California and then, well, and literally around the world because of satellite. And so that's how I got back into it, doing it again and just working with all those people. And, you know, it's very different world mixing for broadcast because you're not having to react to the room. So in some ways it's easier. So, yeah, basically getting involved with the A2 stuff, it was what drives me is problem solving. You know, seeing a problem, being able to figure out how in the world do we fix this? And so for that, it was, you know, I was originally there to help run the front of house mix, but then, you know, we had enough people for that. And so it was really finding a niche for myself. And that spoke to me because you're having to juggle all these different things. How do you know, how do you make sure that the mic's going up there? You know, you try to do it in some type of order so that it's not all confused, right? So you're not grabbing, you know, one, three, and five, and they're going up on stage together. You try to clump things together. And so when you go down looking through your program, you try and space out, how do I do these things and which ones are going to cross over? And then, of course, you know, what are the ones that are crossing over for special musics and different things? And so that was really the that problem-solving side of things, and especially, you know, while you're running the program because, you know, things always happen, right? Right. And so being able to just be in this situation where in some ways it's, it's a high stress situation, but not really. It, it, I was, I was thriving on it. It's fun. Because I'm, you know, having to do this live problem solving and really just, it's kind of weird because you, you would think almost that that's kind of that judging thing, you know, the taskless side of things. Right. But organization isn't necessarily that. The judging would be once all this organization gets into place, following it strictly. Right. Yeah, sort <laughs> and of the that's not me. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's the building the organization. That so, I you really know, that reminds me of the film business a little bit, because that was one of the things I really liked when I worked in precision driving uh, for about uh, 11 years, was that we would be doing the same things, you know, driving our cars backwards and forwards. It was always a new show. Yeah. Always either a new location or somewhere we had been a million times, but they address it up like underneath the Disney Hall. There's this like underneath the bridge kind of thing. And they addressed it up as Shanghai in mm -hmm. one movie and they addressed it up as the future in another one. And always different, the different, you know, different people coming in, different hours. And something about that, I think I really thrived on. It yeah. Was, yeah. And although microphones in plays. I've done a few school plays 
And that always stressed me out. I always had this high pressure, like, what if something goes wrong? Like, I, which mic to mute? So, and like, I'd lose track of which mic someone had. So I'd be like, oh, like, where is it? You know? Yeah, I think the, the most stressful thing for me when I was doing that was, and it was once I was already in college, by the time that I actually, or no, I was in high school, but I, I would go back and do it for my elementary, like Christmas show or whatever. And the hard part for me was not which mics or whatever. It was because it was in the gym. Yeah. So hard. So hard not to have feedback. And so hard. You try and turn up the mic so people can hear what they're saying. Exactly. If the actor's not projecting because they're amateur. Exactly. And you're doing this and you try and turn it up. You know, yeah, exactly. Like, barely, you hear a little feedback, you dial it back. Oh, that's too hot. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I actually faced that just a couple months ago. We had a scene group that had 16 open mics on stage. That was tough. <laughs> And I literally, that whole program, I had the whole thing, the whole thing. And I was literally pushing and dropping mics constantly depending yeah. on who, and they passed a solo around the group. So almost everyone had a solo at one point during this one so song. So you end up having to know the material because you have to know when, who's singing who, what, when, and how to oh, blend yeah. them. Because I, I've often done that, you know, kind of like blending the two and the harmonies and getting the lead to pop out just a little bit more, but you kind of have to ride it because the levels are oh, all yeah. in place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's And it was a not ideal sound environment or anything. It was a conference center and the speakers weren't set up ideally for doing music stuff probably needed more speakers and more monitors to really have done it well. Yeah. And so just struggling with all those different things is like, yeah, that's stressful. Live sound is one of those thankless jobs. If you do your job right. Oh, yeah. Nobody notices you. Yes. <laughs> but if you do your job just a little bit wrong or you're doing with some challenges. Yeah. Oh, the sound was awful. Like, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's a thankless job. Oh, yeah. Fortunately, then all well, the rest of the weekend was fine. It was just that one concert, but it was just like <laughs> probably good that you're you're on the introversion scale in that regard. You probably don't need the accolades so much. No, I do. Really, I do because it's validation. I mean, I think I almost in some ways need it more hmm. because I'm stuck in my head, <laughs> right? Uh. And so I need these accolades coming in because. Otherwise, I'm just dealing with my own self-esteem. So I'm going to make an Instagram post that says, introverts need accolades. Yeah. Although maybe accolades is the wrong word because that tends to be with, you know, pulling them up front. Appreciation? Yeah. Introverts need appreciation. Appreciation, reinforcement, you know, all, uh -huh. those, all that different stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So what is teaching taught you? Your mom's a teacher. Yeah. And so pedagogy is something you're pretty familiar with, even though you're not a teacher. I have. You have. That's right. That's right. I taught at my alma mater uh, high school for a year, just doing yearbook and subbing, tons of subbing, because I was when swine flu was hit and like everyone was just dropping like flies. And so I did a ton of subbing and whatnot with that. And then the next year I actually went out to Palau you flew and taught it. An island high school there. in the South Pacific yes. that most people have never heard of. Yes. I had Unless not. they've heard of Jollyfish Lake. Nope. Okay. <laughs> so there's this lake where you can actually snorkel with jellyfish. Nah. And it's freshwater. Whoa. Or no, it's not totally freshwater, but it's protected enough that the jellyfish basically their stinging and all that is pretty much gone. 
Oh. And so that's why you can swim with them because they're, they don't have any natural predators in that that's environment. Incredible. Yeah. Wow. So these jellyfish have evolved not needing yes. stingers. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So yeah, I taught computers and algebra out there for a year and I liked it. I am not a fan of teaching in classrooms. Uh, okay. I think that's the whole having to come up with lesson plans and every <laughs> all the tediousness of it. Right. I love teaching people though. So like in college, taking an intro to programming my very first quarter in college and I'm tutoring people while I'm in the class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just because they needed someone that could explain stuff in a way that made sense to them. That goes back to the problem solving and creative solutions type of thing. What analogies are going to speak to them and make it understandable? Right. So if you can relate something to something you're already comfortable with, then it bridges that gap. Makes yes. Sense. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And that's an area that even goes back and ties back into what I'm doing for work now. So I've worked with people in all these different industries over the course of all my different careers that I've had. <laughs> and so I I kind of get a feel for what these different industries, how they relate to stuff. And so how in the world do I bridge technology with them? Right. And so that's part of the user experience is really not building it the same way as everyone else just because that's how things are made, but mm-hmm. really trying to figure out, okay, how do we make the information understandable to them easily? Right. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's easy to put data on a screen, but how do you make it understandable and easily accessible without them having to try to think through things? Right. When you're dealing with a wide range of users, just like you're dealing with a wide range of students. Yeah. They all have, some people are, some people need a different approach. Yeah. Part of the reason that I had to pick up that tutoring job to help those kids was because the teacher would get stuck. He would create an analogy. This is how objects are. And if you didn't catch onto the analogy, then he would try to explain the analogy. And so it just got mm. more and more complex. Convoluted. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was where basically, you know, instead of forcing things through, just back up and try again, figure out a way that's going to be more natural. You asked about my mom and her experiences with teaching and a lot of that. And we had computers in the classroom growing up. And so... Later on, I think I started in college or maybe right after it, I started writing programs for her so that she could actually do more because it was a combined classroom, it was fifth and sixth. And so she could actually, I put together a system for her so she could actually do spelling tests and stuff like that all through the computers. And so she actually had a bunch of MP3 players and (laughs) she would just record the quiz or test or whatever and then put in the answers and it would do all the checking and everything for her. And now there's software services that do all these things. There is. But this was how many years ago? This was at least 10 years ago. Yeah. And so she was able to do that. And that enabled her to do a lot more one-on-one time with kids because she wasn't getting stuck in having to do a spelling test. 
That's incredible. You know, we're standing up front and reading out the words one by one for the whole class. And now it's gotten to the point where she's, there are systems, like you said, for this type of stuff. And so one, she does, she's doing a lot of math now for grades five up through algebra and uh, geometry. And so for all those different kids, she's doing very individualized because she will get a student coming in to the school that's a sixth grader and their math comprehension is like third grade level. And it's like in a classical classroom, there's not much you can do about that. You can get them some after school stuff and tutoring and whatever to complement it. But it's, you know, it's rough on the kid Mm -hmm. to have to go through all that and try to struggle through this math class that they're not prepared for. And now you remember the Iowa test of basic skills or whatever the the test you'd have to take once a year to... Oh, like the SAT, like they called it in my thing, where you just fill in the little bubbles with the number two pencil. Yes, exactly. It had to be a number two pencil. Yes. It can be anything else. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. So there's a company that does, they call it map testing. I can't remember what the acronym is or anything, uh-huh. but they have a companion program called Map Skills, where you can actually go through and do smaller tests to see exactly where, like if you have mastery of a subject. And so with this, she can actually have them go through and they don't pass until they actually master the idea. And so nowhere are they actually skipping over stuff because, well, we're on to the next chapter. I believe it was the student that came in with the third grade level. By the end of the year, they were almost caught up. Wow. Why? Because they were able to learn the stuff that was appropriate for them. Right. And... That takes a massive amount of creativity on her part to be able to manage all of these things simultaneously. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I was going to say about all the different software services that are available now. If Don't Call Us Tori in 2005 had had access to Google Docs, Google Drive, and Facebook groups. Yeah. And Square. Yes. We would have grown so much faster. Like that was part of the reason that Don't Call a Story was unsustainable because those things at that time you had to develop ad hoc or pay tens of thousands of dollars to do. And yeah. And the internet was still, it was MySpace. Google Drive was just entering the scene at that time. Yeah. And it was like the overhead for not having those things was so huge. But in today's world, it would have, I think it would have blown up with Instagram and shoot, man, like. Oh, yeah. And all that. It would have been so another The services available today are just phenomenal. And that's, I mean, (laughs) that's a good portion of my business is actually integrating these services together. Right. So that you can make it all work. And not only that, but like doing, you know, making these services, people solving these problems. I mean, that's one of the things that helps people who never, ever, ever have to touch a piece of code. Yeah. These solutions now, they're so much more available if you're starting your own business, if you're making your own album. There's so many more things at your fingertips. Oh, yeah. That you can do very easily because somebody said, hey, there's a problem. Yeah. I want to solve it. And took that skill set and that know-how and that technical side and applied it to, you know, something, something human. Yeah. And that's actually a facet of that. My business partners, I haven't really done anything with it yet, is they have Automators Academy. Oh. And that's literally a, a course where you can go through and learn some of these no-code solutions of how to get things to work together wow. to be able to accomplish stuff. That's amazing. You know, I would really love for you to plug some of your 
projects that your company is doing? So Automators Academy is the one that they're working on, and that's one of our things. And then I am working on OffGenie, offgenie.com. It's uh, basically doing multi-factor authentication. So, you know, when you have to put in those six-digit codes that they email or text you or whatever. So I'm trying to do that except for just push notifications. So you literally just have the app on your phone. And whatever website you're logging into, they can just say, send the notification. And all you have to do is you get the pop-up and you hit OK. Oh, wow. So no texting codes back, no, no copy-pasting. Yeah, no messing with codes, no any of that. It just it literally will pop up in your phone. You get a notification, you click on it, you click OK. And that's going to be hopefully launching probably, hopefully by the time that this podcast airs. It probably will be. And, and we'll, so, give a, we'll give a link in the show notes. Yeah, if not... I'll at least make sure to have the website up so that you can find out more information about that. And that's another one of those things where I'm trying to make something give you added security without having to code tons of extra stuff. So I'm going to, we're hopefully going to start with like a WordPress plugin so that you can make your site more secure without having to try and code something complex or pay a service, this monstrous monthly fee for something that you only log into occasionally. Right. And then what's the Chromecast one? Matrixc.app. It's M-A-T-R-I-K-S-E-E dot, dot app. Yeah. Yeah, A-P-P. Yeah, if you have a Google account, you can just go there and log in and see what it does. And if you have a Chromecast, that makes the experience a whole lot better. So, uh, Leo Lutz, yeah. thank you for joining us. Well, yeah. thank you for having me. You watched me falling through that trap door, then a transform life. Thanks for listening to part one with Leo Lutz. Hit the subscribe button if you haven't already, so you'll be notified about the release of part two. In the next episode, Steve and Leo talk about religious deconstruction, depression, and how groups and society are shaped by the codes that they've inherited, and what it's like to question and rewrite that programming. Thanks for listening.